You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, We will be dismissing ages 2 through 5 and grades 1 through 3. If you haven't already, you may be seated. You know, as Dean was reading the text for today, I must admit that this thought came to my mind. Man, I don't think I have crafted a sermon that does the text justice. I mean, I've done what I've done, right? But even as he was reading, I feel the weight of this passage, while at the same time, acknowledging 
I don't think I've hit all the things in the passage. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of going back in my mind um, a couple months, maybe about a month and a half actually, where I'm like, I'm just going to cruise through chapter 10 and get right to the, back to the faith chapter of Hebrews 11, <laughs> the exciting stuff. And here we are, and I'm like, you know, questioning. <laughs> so maybe we'll come back to this text next week. I don't know. I'm going to pray about it. But I, I really do feel the weight of it. But also realizing um, I want to serve you faithfully uh, as your pastor, as the one who preaches on a regular basis. So pray for me as I'm praying for you. Uh, a couple thoughts um, that I have written down before I pray and, and read. Uh, first, before I do pray, um, the book of Hebrews on the whole uh, has really shown us a lot, I think. I'm constantly amazed by how applicable the book of Hebrews is to your life. While there are like several major themes that dominate the book, and we've seen this over and over, Jesus is greater or superior than basically Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. That's a major theme that dominates. The other one is this relationship between the Old and the New Covenants, right? That's basically Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, and we're kind of ending that particular theme. Those dominate, and those are great, and we've seen that. But I think the book of Hebrews really does cut to the heart in the best way. It really gets here. Yes, there's really good theology in Hebrews, Right? And I've said over and over, it's the greatest exposition of the Old Testament. But it drops right into the heart and hopefully your life. Today's passage is, is case in point. One does not honestly read Hebrews 10 verses 26 to 39 without walking away and asking, what does this mean for my life? Right? I mean, if you're taking Scripture seriously, you have to ask the question or some type of variation of that question. What does this passage mean for me? My first thought, the first big thought, leads to my second thought. Today's passage and this sermon, I think, will become very personal. One, one way or another, you will feel this passage deeply. And before I begin, I want to say this as your pastor, as I preach. God is here. If you are a Christian, God is with you. Emmanuel, right? God will guide you and lead you throughout your life. And as I said last week, God's grip on you is much stronger than your grip on him. And that's really good news. That's really, really good news. I constantly feel like i got grease on my hands, right? God's grip is just so strong. Remember that because this passage is like a one-ton weight. At least that's how, I, how it felt for me. This passage is like opening a fire hose, if you want to use a different metaphor. It is, it is meant to wake you up to face reality. My second thought leads to my third thought, which is a reminder. A reason why we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, is that we can't avoid the hard passages. Hey, this came to mind, like, if I were to, like, just skip by Hebrews 10, verses 26 
basically to 31, but you know, all the way to 39, I have no doubt I would receive an email or a text message from multiple people in this church who would say, dude, and, and you know what? I invite that. <laughs> dude, you're just skipping by the hard stuff? Uh, one time I inadvertently did that. And, he, and my, wife, my wife's like, you didn't even address, yeah, I can't remember, it was somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount. You didn't even address these particular verses. What's going on, man? And, and I'm thankful for that. Um, all of this is God's word and is meant for us. And, and we're supposed to come underneath it. And it is authoritative in our life. So no skipping by the hard stuff in this church. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into today's text. Heavenly Father, as I feel the weight of this particular passage, I ask for your help. In the power of the Holy Spirit, help me to be a faithful pastor this morning, a faithful preacher. And I pray for my dear friends that are in front of me. Because this is your word, this is for them as well. And I pray it would just not be some intellectual exercise, but you'd be working in their heart and in their life. Oh God, we trust that you are in this place this morning. So speak to us through your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is full of warnings. And the Bible reflects life. The Bible's full of warnings that say, if you do A then B will happen. Or, if you do not do A, then B will not happen. The Bible, another way to think about this, is full of blessings and curses. If you do this, then it will go well with you. (laughs) If you do not do this, it will not go well with you. I mean, I'm not talking about you know, Nostradamus allegedly giving a prophetic warning about the rise of Hitler, nor am I talking about William Lilly predicting the great London fire in the 1600s, nor am I talking about predicting the winner or loser of the next presidential election and then worrying about all the downstream effects. It's not what I'm talking about. The warnings we receive from the Bible, particularly right now the book of Hebrews, are practical and resonate. The warning we receive is more like this. If I tell you that walking over hot coals with your bare feet is going to cause blisters, right? That's the warning. If you do that, you're going to get blisters. So watch out. It's that kind of warning we see in front of us this morning. There's a cause and effect. The cause and effect are obvious. Hebrews 10, 26 begins by telling us what life will be like if we walk over the hot coals with bare feet. The first part of today's passage is a necessary warning of what will happen if you walk away from God and his church. Now, before looking at the warning and our response to the warning, let's situate this passage in its proper context. Last week, The Word of God encouraged us to what? To not neglect gathering together. That was the encouragement. Don't neglect that, guys. God designed human beings for a community to exist within this little platoon, this local church, to cultivate our personal growth and to increase our understanding and knowledge of God. That's how we arrived at Hebrews 10, verse 26. 
And then here is the last verse that leads right into the great faith chapter of Hebrews 11. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's what leads right into the great faith chapter. But note the connection of persevering faith that kicks off a longer section explaining what it means to have faith in God. Ryan preached part of that passage several months ago. So the literary context of the warning in verses 26 to 31 is to pursue persevering faith with a bunch of other people in a local church who are pursuing persevering faith. Therefore, I think I can conclude that disconnecting yourself from the gathered church will likely result in an inability to to pursue persevering faith. I got you nodding over there, which is good, because we need each other in this venture. I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but I think my conclusion is also confirmed from experience. Time and time again, I have noticed that faith becomes leaky when someone begins to disconnect themselves from the church. I stole that last phrase from my dear friend, Pastor Rick Gamash. Uh, For example, my truck had a slow oil leak about nine months ago. It cost a lot of money to fix that oil leak because they had to get into the engine and do a bunch of stuff, right? Anytime you mess with the engine, dollar bill goes up. What would eventually happen if I never dealt with a problem and I never put more oil into the engine to replace the oil that was leaking? What if I never dealt with the problem? The answer is so obvious. My truck would run out of oil. The same goes for our faith. When there is a leak, it's time to find the mechanic. We need to hear the warning that you will run out of oil if you do not fix the leak. Like I said, it costs a lot of money to fix that oil leak, but it was worth it. If your faith is leaky, I want you to receive the warning from verses 26 to 31 this morning. Take it to heart. Let's take another look at the beginning of today's passage. We read from God's word. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Should a person outside the grace of the gospel fear the judgment of God? You better believe it. And by the way, we also see from verses 26 to 27 that the atonement of Christ is limited, but that's a thorny theological issue for some people for another day. Continue to read with me in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, not only that, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged 
the spirit of grace. Like there's some heavy hitting going on right here. The point being made is that if you think transgressing or breaking the old covenant law was terrible, how much worse will it be for you if you reject Christ? The imagery of trampling the Son of God uh, underfoot is actually really powerful. Uh, in, in the first century and in many cultures today, a, a sign of, um, uh, of insulting someone would be like to take their picture and like, put it underneath your foot. Uh, perhaps for us, that's like spitting in someone's face, right? Just a massive insult. Now, the thorny theological issue I need to address is in verse 29. If you're reading an English Standard Version, verse 29 seems to suggest that a person was sanctified. We learned a couple weeks ago that also means made holy. And then they profane the blood of the covenant. To profane something is not neutral, but it's an active hostility toward God. Allow me to paint a picture in modern day terms. You have someone in the church who has professed the gospel, right? And then at some point walked away and profaned the gospel. They spit in the face of God. I have not pulled you, pulled anyone in this room, but I'm willing to guess that everyone in this room knows somebody who professed faith in Christ and then walked away, right? And sometimes, again, that gets really personal potentially. It could be a family member, a friend. The word used to describe this action is apostasy. John Stott said it well. The essence of apostasy is changing sides from that of the crucified to that of the crucifier. Francis Schaeffer makes a similar point, but with a little more spice. Apostasy must be called what it is. Spiritual adultery. Apostasy is a thorny theological issue because it raises the question, if God saves a person, are we saying that that person is all of a sudden unsaved? Right? That's the line of thinking here. It's the fair question. And if a person can become, quote, unsaved, what does that tell us about the power of the cross? Back in September, Dean Klein preached from Hebrews 6, and we were talking before um, we began our service that uh, Hebrews 6 and this passage in Hebrews 10 are probably the two most theologically thorny passages, definitely in the book of Hebrews, perhaps all of the New Testament, perhaps all of the Bible. Um, and it has the same tension in both passages. That was help helped by what Dean said and what he laid out regarding a few options about how we should consider apostasy. I put them on the screen for your reference, and he gave three options that I found helpful. And I just called them view one, view two, view three. The first view is like true Christians could never find themselves in this position, right? Like if you're truly a Christian, you'll never face apostasy, period, hard stop. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good, but does that answer some of the questions that um, our text is naturally asking, right? So the first view. Second view, there's a, 
that true Christians can actually lose their salvation. It is the, I was saved and now I'm unsaved. Right? View number three. Professing Christians, uh, someone professed faith in Christ, showed outward signs of being a Christian, but they fell away and therefore were not truly Christian. There's probably other options and other ways to nuance it, but me personally, I was helped by the way Dean laid that out way back in September. I think he actually wrote a paper on this for graduate school. There was a time when I held the first view, right? But the older I live and the longer I study Scripture, the third view seems to be most consistent across the Scriptures. I think 1 John 2 19 helps us to see the third view. And I quote, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they are not of us. A lot of people go to church. They go out from us. And sometimes the purpose of going out from us is to reveal that they were never part of us to begin with. For example, let, let's say I try to convince an NBA team um, that I belong, right? I love basketball. Uh, because I'm persistent and say I have the right connections, I was invited to practice with an NBA team. What is going to happen within five minutes of that practice? <laughs> right? Maybe 30 seconds. <laughs> like, barely put on my tennis shoes. <laughs> it will become obvious that I do not belong. Sure, I can dribble. Sure, I can pass. Sure, I can make a few shots. But does that make me an NBA player? No, I'm six foot tall. I'm as slow as all get out. I don't belong. I don't belong. There might be outward signs, but one is not the same as the rest. Now, that's a silly example, especially when compared to a person's spiritual journey. But I hope you see the point. The truth is that uh, of this particular passage, the Greek language in this section is a little difficult to translate. An alternative reading of verse 29 might be, emphasize the might be, this. A person who profanes the blood of the covenant, which sanctifies. So that word sanctifies is now in connection to the blood of the covenant and not the individual. Reasonable people disagree, and I'll allow you to draw your own conclusions. The primary point, though, is that the author of Hebrews was preaching a sermon to a people tempted to walk away from the faith. His warning is simple. If you walk away, you will receive judgment. And the warning of judgment is heightened in verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The author of Hebrews is quoting Isaiah 26, a passage from there, and then Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. And he's quoting them not just for effect. You could take these quotes in one of two directions, or perhaps both directions. Should the one who profanes the Son of God fear the judgment of God? You better believe it. 
That is one way to take these quotes. The other direction is to set your mind on the second coming of Christ. There will be a day when God will judge the living and the dead. Those who have not repented and confessed Christ will be judged. Regardless of what you think the intent of quoting Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk 2, the tension is obviously revealed. There's judgment going on. It's not popular to talk about or preach on the judgment of God on the whole. Like, when's the last time you heard a sermon about the judgment of God? Right? It's not popular. Despite the fact that the pages of Holy Scripture are filled with words of judgment, pulpits will not preach what is unpopular. From Genesis 3, when God judged Adam, Eve, and the serpent, to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, there's judgment. For the sake of fact-checking myself, here's what Jesus says in Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This passage from Revelation 22 is rated G in comparison to other judgment passages in the book of Revelation. This is an old school Disney movie, right? Listen, for some people, verses 26 to 31 seems harsh. It might seem harsh because we all know people who have walked away from Christ. Like I said, family members, friends. I mean, I know mega, former mega church pastors who've walked away from Christ. I know non mega church pastors, right? They got up there. They preached the gospel. And now they're spitting in the face of Christ. They've walked away and they will be judged harshly by God. So that's one way we have to think about this passage. I really do. I really think we've got to keep that in front of us. But I also want to offer a second approach to this passage not to dismiss the first one, keep that in view, but, but another way to think about this passage. I want to argue that this warning is also the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God. Because of human nature, because of remaining sin, warnings from God help us to resist our worst inclinations. Like This is a, this is a mercy. When my kids were younger... I would tell them, do not touch the hot stove, <laughs> right? I would even speak to them in a different tone to capture their attention. Why did I tell them not to touch the hot stove? We all know the reason why. The same goes for Christians in the church. Why does God need to deliver a warning? There are consequences for actions. In verse 32, the author of Hebrews employs a strategy, a really good one, to encourage the church to press on in the faith and to not walk away. I'm going to use a similar approach with you this morning. The author of Hebrews reminds them of the grace of God at work in their life in the past. Look at verses 32 and 35. I love this. After that warning, right? don't walk away. There's judgment. If you do, 
The author of Hebrews says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you came to know the grace of the gospel, right? You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Like you were friends with the people who were being treated poorly, who were being persecuted. And now you're being treated poorly, and you're being persecuted. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, in light of all that, in light of all that you've gone through, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Like, remember, this is not your first rodeo. No matter what you're going through right now, it's not your first rodeo, Christian. You've been down this road before, and by God's grace, you continue to get through it all. By God's grace, you endured personal suffering. Why did you get cancer? I don't know, but by God's grace, you got through it. Why did that person get in your face at the family reunion? I don't know, but the peace of Christ is in you, and you handled it well. By God's grace, you endured suffering when you joined with others to stand for ideals and principles that matter to God. When you're in prison, God was at work. When your property was plundered, you stood strong, and God is calling you to remember his grace in the past so it might be an encouragement for you in the present. You can tell the author of Hebrews like knows his recipients really well, right? The fact that the recipients of this sermon went to prison and their property was plundered, was stolen, is like intimate information. He's like, I know what you went through, guys. As your pastor, who knows you well, I hope, I want you to hear this and Perhaps I'm speaking Pastor Rob as well. I know the world we live in seems crazy. I know the world we live in seems crazy. Anxiety and depression is at an all-time high. Parents are wondering what kind of place are we leaving for our children. There are several moral issues within the culture that do not stand up to God's standards of justice. One issue I'll mention in a moment. Your dollar does not go as far as it used to. And I could go on and on. But remember... Despite all of that, God has been faithful to you. He was faithful to you in your darkest moment, and he is faithful to you during your most joyous moment. And God will continue to be faithful to his people. We need to remember. We cannot forget. What is the appeal in light of Everything that has been taken away, what is the author's appeal? The appeal is that the treasures of this earth do not compare to the eternal possession that you will one day acquire. Verse 34. Now, what is not being said is that the things of this world do not serve a purpose or do not have value. What is not being communicated is that it's all going to burn, so who cares? That's not what's being said here. Sadly, a lot of Christians have that perspective. What is being communicated is that the inheritance you will receive, Ephesians 1.11, does not compare to the things of the world. It's better. 
And I'm so looking forward to it. The Lord does give and the Lord does take away. But there will be a day when the Lord will give you, Christian, an eternal inheritance. Therefore, there is no need to fret. There is no need to complain about the injustice leveled toward you because you have Christ. And one day you will obtain that eternal possession. If you, considering, if you consider everything I've said, my next point makes perfect sense. God's word is calling you to persevere and endure. You endured in the past, verse 32, and you need to continue to endure, verse 36. And is this not what we need to hear today? We need to continue to endure. We need to continue to persevere. I'm uh, 42 years old, which means I've been following the Lord for about 21 years. My wife has been following the Lord much longer. And while the circumstances surrounding God's saving grace in our lives are vastly different, very different, I think we both could testify that there is always a need to endure until the end. There is a need to hear the call. You will persevere until Jesus comes back or until the day you die. So let's consider the reasons why you need to hear the call from God to keep going, to stay on the narrow path. Here's the first reason why we need to continue to endure. We need to, need to endure because we do become weary. We become weary. You might be shocked to hear that I'm not a marathon runner. That does not take a a graduate degree to figure out that I don't have a runner's body. <laughs> However, I have trained and ran several half marathons. Before the Powers family moved to Iowa, I was a pastor of a church in the Twin Cities, as many of you know. There was a member of that church who was a marathon runner. His name was Ray, great guy. And he encouraged me to start running with him. So I did. In time, I worked up to running 15-ish miles without stopping. But the process of getting to that point where I could run 15 miles required two things. First, I needed to hear encouragement from my friend Ray. Hey, Sean, keep going. Sean, you got this. One foot over the other. Just keep going. And if you trip, because I am clumsy, get up, keep going. I cannot overstate what his encouragement meant for me. Even when we ran a few races together, he was with me every step of the way, even though he could have zipped right by me. Like this dude runs marathons in every state. He's like trying to get you know, medal for every state in different countries as well. Now, after a few races that we ran together, he encouraged, you know, he's encouraged me every step of the way. All of a sudden, he took a bathroom break. And I was running by myself. I was a little taken back by it. I'm used to having Ray with me. He wanted me to see that I could run the race without him. Not alone, but for myself. The second thing I needed is I needed to endure. I needed to personally tell myself, I am going to endure. I am going to persevere. There is no cutting corners when preparing for something like a marathon or a half marathon. At mile eight, 
When the knees are weary, you need to endure until the finish line. When you're at mile 10 and the race has become mentally weary, we must endure until the end. Yes, you are weary, but a water breaks around the corner. (laughs) So we need to endure in light of the fact that the race can become weary. Let's acknowledge that for what it is. A second reason we need to hear the call to endure is because of sin. Hebrews 10 verse 26 addresses that. A scene that I've seen over and over is when a person gets caught up in a specific sin and eventually that sin is exposed, there's a particular response. When that happens, a person has several options. The first response is shame. The shame from exposed sin is so great that a person can't endure it. When there is shame, the path of least resistance is to walk away from Christ in his church. Another response to sin is a hardened heart. And perhaps this is the most destructive response to exposed sin. A person with a hardened heart is not willing, is not only willing to walk away from Christ in his church, but walk away anyone associated with his sin. I've seen that over and over as well. I've seen the devil use both tactics on people. So how does someone endure in light of sin? Because remaining sin does, is a thing for us right now. Christian endurance is repentant, repentance and reconciliation. That's Christian endurance. Repentance and reconciliation. There's a prayer I say under my breath almost every day, several times a day. And my kids have finally gotten over the awkwardness of dad talking under his breath. It's a prayer used by many in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. It is a prayer of repentance. It goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'll just say it again. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Just multiple times a day, kind of randomly. There are times when you may need to repent because of what is going on in your heart, right? And there are times you need to repent because of the external actions. Either way, repentance is a means of Christian endurance. A third reason why you need to be told to endure is because of suffering. In particular, suffering because you are a Christian. The recipients of this sermon needed to be told to endure because under the reign of Emperor Claudius, Christians were being executed for their faith. That's basically Hebrews 10, 32, and 33. Now, while there are parts of the world where Christians continue to be physically persecuted for their faith, And those brothers and sisters need our prayer. Being persecuted for Christ in the United States, I think, looks different. At present, suffering happens for standing firm on the teachings of Christ. You know, if you say you follow Jesus, most people don't blink an eye. You start getting into what Christ taught. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. They might be trouble. Consider this thought experiment. A Christian missionary in Iran, or somewhere in the Middle East, is not persecuted because they believe in God's design for marriage. They're not. They're being persecuted because they follow Christ. It is different in the West and in the United States. I've told my family before, and I know I've shared with some of you, there might be a day when I go to prison, suffering, for standing firm 
Lord willing, for not wavering from the teachings of Christ. I'm ready for that day. Well, I'm ready mentally. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, though? Like, I'm preparing myself. And maybe, maybe it's not my generation. Maybe it's the next. I don't know. For years, I've been consistent on most of the, quote, hot-button issues that come up in culture, right? Overall, I have not changed because the Word of God has not changed. But the culture has changed, right? For example, last Wednesday, Cherise shared a story with me about how the Montana state government took a 13-year-old child away from their parents. The parents would not allow their 13-year-old to undergo child sexual mutilation. The culture calls this gender-affirming care, which is just a euphemism. It's just a euphemism. 20 years ago, no one could imagine a scenario where a child would conceive to undergo this kind of drastic change and also subverting the parents in the process. But today, we have local and federal governments telling parents what is best for their children. And I'm looking at you, California and Canada, right? We all see it right in front of our eyes. Are you willing to stand up for what God believes about the family, about sexuality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Well, if so, guess what? Persecution will come. I'm going to make a, a proposition that has like a prophetic twinge. If you are not suffering because of your faith at some point in your life, then you might be doing it wrong. I'm not saying you need to go pick a fight. That is not what I'm saying at all. Don't go looking to pick a fight. What I am saying is if you are following Christ, it's going to be costly. You might lose your job. And I'm not hoping for that. At all. I mean, when we go through Genesis, like we meet in a public school. When we talk about God's design for marriage and sexuality, and the wrong person hears that one thing that I said, how's that going to go? I don't know. But following Christ means there's a cost. We must endure the suffering. Our Lord Jesus said these words to his disciples and that continues to, imply, to apply. It's from John 22. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you, he's talking to his disciples, speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus is talking about his ascension. So Jesus is telling his disciples that things are about to change. And just as Jesus is about to suffer, so will his followers. Jesus continues in John 22. So this is from John 16. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tri tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. <laughs> so yeah, two things are true at the same time. God calls Christians to bring about change in the world. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Matthew 28, that's true. Also what is true, many people do not like what the Christian faith has to offer. 
which means there's going to be conflict on some level. There's going to be. There is. And because there's conflict, there's a temptation to walk away. Like, I don't like conflict. We just had our 17-year anniversary, my wife and I, Groundhog's Day. And uh, 17 years, my, my wife has pointed out to me, you don't like conflict. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know I don't like conflict. But how many times does reality slap us in the face and show us, oh, oh. Whether I like it or not, there's going to be conflict. And this leads back to the first point. It's good to be warned. It's good to be warned. It's good to be warned because the warning can help us prepare for tension or conflict that aims to cause a leak in your faith. It's good to be warned so that rebar can be placed into the foundation of our faith. Reinforcing the foundation helps ensure we do not have a sandy foundation which will wash away with the tide. Luke 6 and Matthew 7. A warning helps us to create a Christ-focused strategy that will result in persevering until the end. So the warning's good. Like I said, we have to contend with the judgment, right? God, God does judge, and he will judge the living and the dead. But it's also a mercy. We can receive the warning as a mercy. And I'm going to end with this encouragement from Hebrews 10.39. May this verse be a declaration over your life and a comfort for your soul. But we, Redemption Hill, are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed no redemption hill, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's continue to press on in the faith by the grace of God to the glory of God, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.